Now, there's never a convenient time for full or even partial government shutdowns, but we've reached the beginning of the end of another fiscal year with the likelihood of a shutdown rising. So how can contractors make sure they're ready for it and minimize the damage? As always, for these kinds of questions, we turn to Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. So it's looking like a partial shutdown is more than likely, but uh, not quite sure where things currently stand. Uh, What are you hearing mostly from the folks who are on the government contracting side, what are they preparing for, the worst, or just this is business as usual now? Well, Eric, I wouldn't say that it's business as usual, but contractors are in a really complex time because they're simultaneously trying to grab and close last-minute business before this fiscal year closes down. But in the meantime, they have to make sure that they have their in-place contracts managed properly for a potential shutdown. Uh, By the way, I do think that's going to happen. I think whether it happens on October 1st or maybe we get a short-term CR that takes us into October and then a shutdown, one way or the other, I think the chances of that are probably better than 75%. I don't say that with happiness, by the way, but I'm just looking at the situation. And all I'm really hoping for is that if we do get one, that it's not going to be very long. But if you're a government contractor, you need to be communicating with your government contracting officers, the people that manage your contracts. You need to understand what's going to shut down on their end, whether or not you're going to get paid, whether or not expedited pay is available. Uh, And then you need to go turn around if you're a services contractor, especially and tell your service employees you know, what they're going to be doing while there's a shutdown. You know, they're not going to be able to volunteer business. They're not going to be able to go and work on a government site if that's something that they've been doing. Yeah, and the day-to-day operations are obviously going to be greatly affected. But I wanted to zero in on, you know, this time of year, it, it goes across the board. Everybody is busy. I mean, this is when everybody's trying to, like you said, get ready for the following year and finish up the fiscal year itself. Having, you know, this dispute occur during this time period, you know, how much more difficult does that make it for businesses that work with the government? I think it makes it very difficult, Eric, and I'll tell you why. There's been a tendency in the government market over the last couple of years to really backload uh, contract award actions. If you look at some of the awards that are made uh, the last two weeks of September, there's really a substantial amount of government business that gets done. Even in the services area, it used to be that by now most of the major service projects were locked up. And whether or not you're talking services or products, large projects are mostly locked up. But there are a lot of medium-sized and smaller pieces of business that contractors are going to be pursuing and government agencies are going to be handing out right up until midnight on September 30th, which, of course, this year is a Saturday. So happy weekend, guys. And that that's a distraction. You know, they, they want to get the business in under the line, which I totally understand. But somebody has to be figuring out what happens when the sun comes up October 1st and we don't have an appropriations. What's that going to mean for your business? What that's, what's that going to mean for your employees that right now have a charge number? And you said you were hoping and holding out the best hope that it's going to be a short one, but you never know how these things can go and how stubborn everybody can be on both sides. What should they do to potentially prepare for a longer term shutdown, but also maintain that you got to keep things going in the short term, too? So I think one of the biggest things that's important to understand, Eric, is that the shutdowns don't happen all at once. 
uh, everybody says, well, you know, we run out of money on X date and, you know, on X date, everything closes down. That's not really the case. You'll have some things that absolutely do close down as soon as the government runs out of money. But you'll also have some functions that continue on and things that have alternate sources of funding, either permanently or at least for a little while. So you could have a project or a couple of projects that are funded for the first five or six weeks or three weeks of a shutdown. But after that, you know, that money runs out and those things then have to shut down. On the other side, you can have some things that are at first deemed non-essential that shut down, but after two or three weeks, people deem them essential. Suddenly, we have to go on with that function regardless, and so some projects could start back up after initially being shut down. That's extremely confusing for contractors and for government, frankly. We've already seen some government agencies kind of telegraph this, Eric, that that's you know, probably going to happen in the event that a shutdown lasts more than two weeks. So you need to really keep those communications sharp. This is not a time if you're a contractor to tell all of your contract managers and senior management people that it's a great time to go uh, take a vacation because it's not. You could find that something that is closed down suddenly has to be restarted and you have to make sure that people are available for that. Similarly, you have to be prepared to wind down operations over time that may operate for a couple of weeks, but then run out of money if this is, in fact, a protracted shutdown. In other news, there was an interesting maneuver by one particular contractor, and it's a big one. It's Verizon, who actually blew the whistle on themselves and said, oh, yeah, uh, there's a little bit of waste and abuse going on here and decided to come forward with it. Obviously, that's what you're supposed to do, but it seems as if maybe they may have done it out of self-interest as well. Eric, that's right. Most companies try to fly low under the radar, and they do actually, I think, try to comply with their government contract requirements. But Verizon here, I think, is notable uh, for turning themselves in and saying, hey, you know, we didn't do what we said we were going to do under this telecommunications contract. And I think the hat's off to Verizon. They set a great example. And I'll tell you that for a couple of reasons. First of all, every contractor needs to be reminded that they have a mandatory disclosure clause in their contracts. So when they have credible evidence of wrongdoing, and that's the standard, then they are supposed to report it at least to the CO. And technically, the law says you're supposed to report that both to the CO and the inspector general. Of course, I would advocate any company before you make a disclosure, make sure you're working with competent outside counsel that understands government contracts uh, on that type of disclosure. But we have to remember that you are bound by the mandatory disclosure rule. Also, by coming clean, while Verizon has to pay a fine today, they get to live to contract again another day. And that's taking the long view. You know, if you blow the whistle on yourself, you're going to end up paying a fine, but you're going to end up paying less of a fine up front and fewer legal fees because it's not going to be protracted over a number of years. But you're also likely not going to find yourself in front of a suspension or debarment official, which means that you get to maintain your participation in the federal market, not only the federal market, Eric, but also increasingly state and local government markets that look to the federal excluded parties list to see whether or not a company they want to do business with 
is on it. It's not all on the companies, though, right? Agencies are going to have to be proactive in, in, in ensuring that their contracts are being fulfilled and that they're being used in a necessary way. What else is going on on that front, especially you know, with a big agency like the General Services Administration? Well, I think those agencies really need to provide oversight. And you, know, you look at the GSA Office of the Inspector General in their semiannual report, they come out with some real doozies. And I think, you know, a lot of times, Eric, when we talk about government contract compliance, we're talking about civil fines. And of course, there are a lot of things that happen in the civil arena, but it's not limited to that as the GSAIG's most recent semi-annual report showed. There were two cases of contractors that were convicted of criminal False Claims Act lapses, and that's a real problem. Uh, one company got itself, the owner of the company got itself himself a 30-month sentence in federal prison. So, you know, congratulations. And on top of that, got a $5 million fine. Uh, while the IG report didn't say whether or not the company was suspended or debarred, my guess, Eric, is that both the owner and the company at a minimum, found themselves on the suspended list for a period of time in separate actions. And that's important to remember, too. Both people and companies can end up on that suspended or debarred list. Larry Allen of Allen Federal, thank you as always, my friend. Eric, thank you. I wish your listeners happy selling. And you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. 
Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, Is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing. 
to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is 
having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.